Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation, but it's not a coronation you'd expect because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Pray with me. Father, uh, thank you for this word that you've given us today. Father, I pray that uh, you'll empower Mason by the power of the Holy Spirit to uh, teach this passage to us so that we can understand the truth that you've given us. Father, let us be like the, the seeds that fall on the good soil. Let us grow deep into your son, Jesus Christ. Let us grow strong in faith as you command us to, Father. And as you've given us, Father, uh, please take what we give back to you, our tithes and offerings, Father. Use it. Use it for your kingdom. Use it to grow more disciples who follow you. Amen. Amen. Uh, Res kids, you guys are dismissed to go to class. Uh, ushers, as soon as the res kids clear the aisles.
uh, you guys can come forward for the offering. Hey, we're really glad that you're here on this uh, warm and sunny and glorious day. Uh, Katie said to me in the hallway, she said, your, your, your faithful people will be here today. So it looks like we got a good bit of faithful people. So we're excited that you're here. Uh, my name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor. And uh, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, any Patriots fans? It's church. I didn't think there would be any. Um, <laughs> see, I'm a Panthers fan. So, uh, you know, it's, it is what it is. We are currently in a sermon series going through the book of Mark, and this morning we're going to be in chapter 4. Uh, there's just mad feedback, so uh, thanks. Um, this morning we're going to be in chapter 4. We're going to be just in verses 1 through 20. And so if you have your Bibles, you hopefully have already flipped during the sermon text reading. Uh, I was going to do the whole uh, chapter, but the more I dug into it, the more I saw the sermon text getting longer and longer and longer and longer. And I think Mark sort of emphasizes uh, this one parable, so we're going to look at this one parable this morning. The title of today's sermon is Parables of the King. The parables that we see in Mark chapter 4, uh, most scholars argue, are sort of a summary of all of Christ's parables that he told throughout his ministry. And the book of Mark, we've noted before, is really quick, it's really punchy, it's mostly narrative, going to one place, from another, uh, teaching on the way, doing miracles, getting in, you know, disputes, things like that. Um, I, I, I got to stand in one place, I guess, it's driving me bananas. Um, but in chapter 4, and then again in the Olivet Discourse, there is a great deal of teaching. So really only two places in the whole book of Mark are going to be like what we have this morning. Where we are in Mark chapter 4, and then way later in Mark chapter 13. Now much of Christ's teaching is in parables. I'm not going to go into a, a major definition of the parable as a form. I'm not going to give you a big history of the parable as a form. However, I will note a few things. First, remember, Christ almost always uses parables to teach about the kingdom of God. When Christ is using a parable, he is almost always using that parable to teach about the kingdom of God. The second thing we'll note about parables is that he is always using themes from everyday life. Farming, as we'll see today, fishing, housekeeping, social events with kings, working for a boss. Most of Christ's parables, almost all of Christ's parables, in fact, are using themes from everyday life. A third thing we can note about parables, they use normal elements of creation as sort of vehicles for teaching on redemption. A sub-point about that is that Jesus has a redemptive plan for the everyday stuff of life. Jesus has a redemptive plan for the everyday stuff of life. There have been books written on a statement like that, but suffice it to say what it means is that the everyday stuff of life really, really matters. A fourth thing we can note about parables is that they are provocative and they are surprising. They force the hearers to see themselves in a particular situation and they make them grapple with the Jesus who gives them the parable. And finally, parables reveal truth only to those with receptive ears and hide truth to those without receptive ears. Of note, something we'll dig into a little later in the text, there is a relationship between the heart and the ear. Receptive ears are attached to receptive hearts. In one sense, then, Jesus himself is the greatest parable of all. Right on the outside, he's just a person. On the outside, the scriptures teach that he has no real form that would distinguish him from anyone else. You would see him walking down the street, and you wouldn't think, wow, that is definitely the Son of God. You would just think he's an average, ordinary Joe. 
I guess there were no Joes then, or ordinary uh, Jehoshaphat, I don't know. But on the inside, right, from eyes that see and with a heart that knows, Jesus is far more than an ordinary Jehoshaphat, if we will. Jesus is the Son of God. He is unparalleled in power and grace and in might and in mercy. And what we're going to do this morning is I focus on one parable that Mark seems to focus on. He's going to give the parable, then there's going to be a sort of interlude, and then he's going to explain the parable. Couched between that parable and the explanation of the parable is an interlude that I hope will help us understand why Jesus is teaching in parables, and then we'll equip you in your own study to deal well with parables. So for this morning, I hope we have a few things. I hope we have eyes that can see what God is showing us. I hope we have ears that can hear his word. And most importantly, I pray we have a heart that is hungry for God and a mind searching to know him more. I pray that the word of God will be received in glad hearts this morning. There are three basic parts to the sermon. First, we're going to look at the parable. Second, we're going to look at the interlude between the parable and the explanation. And third, we're going to look at the explanation. So if you would, uh, pray with me as we jump right into the text. Father, uh, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for all of our friends who have gathered to uh, hear your word and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that you will glorify yourself with the preaching of your word. I pray that I might decrease and that you might increase and do a mighty work among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 1 in chapter 4, again, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him. Again, last week we noted that Jesus sent seems to spend more time avoiding crowds than he does running towards them. A very large crowd gathers about him, so he got into a boat and set it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. In, in his teaching, he said to them, and we go on with the parable. Now, let's note just a few things about the parable, starting in verse 3. Listen. That word would be here. Listen. Get your attention, please. All right. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, let's just note a few things from the onset. First, there's a central image that's going to run throughout the whole parable. And that central image is a sower going out to sow. A sower going out to sow, sort of just a man going out with seed in his hand to to toss that seed, is the central image of the parable. Now, the variance in the parable, the sort of differences in each sort of aspect of the parable are the sorts of soil that the seed falls in, the elements that play in each circumstance, right? One birds take, one there are roots present, one everything seems to grow pretty well fell along the path, fell on rocky ground, fell among thorns, fell among good soil. So the variants are the sorts of soil that it falls into, the elements that play around the soil, and then each situation, each scenario has a different sort of end result for those seeds. A sower goes out to sow, some fell along the path, some fell along rocky ground, some fell among thorns, and some fell among good soil. What happens to the ones that fall on the rocky path? They never have roots, they never stay. And the ones that fall on good soil increase, and they increase at rates that are far more impressive than the average sort of yield that a crop would bring. So that's the parable. 
Um, imagine being in the crowd and hearing that teaching and thinking, cool, I mean, okay, uh, makes a lot of sense. This Jesus guy everyone's going crazy about, he might be a miracle worker, but man, his teachings don't make any sense whatsoever. Now, in verses 10 through 13, Jesus is going to take an opportunity to sort of explain, this is why I'm speaking in parables. Verse 10, and when he was alone, note that this is not when he's with the crowd. Last week's sermon dealt with this idea of the community of Christ and the community of antagonism, right? Those who are against Christ. And so when Jesus is with the larger crowd, he's speaking in parables. But now verse 10 tells us there's been a setting change. When he was alone, those around him with the 12, so you have the 12 disciples and then those around them. So there are some people who are following Jesus. You've got your disciples and then a few more asked him about the parables. They're, you know, I, I imagine them sitting there, Jesus, the parable about the seeds and the sower and the rocky ground and uh, the roots and all that, like what is going on there? So they asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So this is kind of one of those hard statements in the Gospels, right? As you read through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you come across statements from time to time that you read and you sort of scratch your head like, if I'm Jesus, which no, no good idea ever came from if I'm Jesus, right? Um, if I'm Jesus and I have a big captive audience listening to me preach, then I am going to want to make abundantly clear every single thing I'm saying, right? I want to make, uh, this is the metaphor I'm using. I'm going to explain the metaphor. Okay, everyone got that? You know, no. Okay, well, let me say it again. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, for you, you've been given the secret to understanding the kingdom. But for everyone else outside, they have not been given such the secret, why not is the immediate question I have. And let's remember one thing. Anytime you're reading a passage of Scripture, it cannot just be ripped out of context and applied as unequivocally true throughout time and space. For instance, last week, Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin, right? And in sort of Christian and pseudo-Christian folklore, there's this idea of the unforgivable sin. If you walk into so many churches in Appalachia, it'll be like, once saved, always saved. <laughs> yes, no, whatever. You believe in tongues? What do you think about the unforgivable sin, right? It's all this thing we talk about. But what Jesus is saying is the unforgivable sin is attributing to God, attributing to Satan, rather, the works of God. All the people who are seeing Jesus perform these miracles, they're seeing his power, they're saying, you know what, he's possessed by Satan. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you guys are going to be forgiven of all kinds of stuff. The Son of Man will forgive all sorts of sins, but you cannot habitually and intentionally attribute to Satan that which God is doing. So what does that mean? It means the unforgivable sin is getting God wrong. The unforgivable sin is not knowing who Jesus is. So the unforgivable sin in that place makes a whole lot more sense to us. And it's with sort of that context that we can go and consider, well, why is Jesus speaking in such a way that those who are already in the inside are going to grow more and those who are on the outside are only going to be more confused? And we have to remember the context. In verse three, or chapter 3, verse 6, the Scriptures read, The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against Christ about how to destroy him. 
We talked last week about how the, the Pharisees and the Herodians are worldly enemies. In fact, sort of the crux of their political arguments, the Pharisees believe there will be a messianic king, someone like Jesus, except not, because they wanted a conquering hero to come and behead Herod and all those folks and then give rightful ownership of their land back to themselves, they felt. And then you had the Herodians, and the Herodians' goal was to keep Herod's line in power. So the Pharisees and Herodians should have nothing in common. They should hate one another. But we see in chapter 3, really early in Mark's narrative, that they are uniting together to defeat Jesus. And so there is this extreme antagonism that is abounding. So the crowds who come to him, the crowds who are coming to Jesus, aren't coming because they're going to worship him. They're not coming because they love him. They're coming because he's a spectacle. He is this viral figure. Again, this is all going to rise and fall on who Jesus is, much like the unforgivable sin. Jesus has made a sharp distinction between the disciples, to whom God entrusts the mystery of the kingdom, and the unbelieving multitude, from whom the truth is concealed. The secret underneath all of this, the secret of the kingdom, as the scriptures say, is that Jesus, in Jesus, the kingdom of God has penetrated the experience of man. In Jesus... The kingdom of God has penetrated the experience of man. Some will hear Christ's message that the kingdom has come and they'll respond affirmatively. Others will hear this message and respond negatively. Now, why does this matter for us? Why does it matter for my life? When I first sort of laid out this text to preach it a while ago, I was nervous about it because I I feel like it can get kind of confusing. But I think it gets really clear when we interpret it, not just to understand theologically, but when we interpret it to obey as Christians. And check it out. I think that we talk about this connection between the heart and the ear. So check this out. They cannot hear because they have a bad ear, but they have a bad ear because they have a bad heart. He's saying, I'm, I'm hiding the secret of the kingdom from these people because if they knew it, they would kill me right now, and my time has not yet come. But I think that bad ear connected to a bad heart, I think that metaphor holds true, especially in our lives. We cannot rightly understand God if we don't have a right heart. You cannot rightly understand who God is and have your heart wrong. The rule and reign of God, check this out, the rule and reign of God can really only be understood where God rules and reigns. The rule and reign of God can really only be understood where God rules and reigns. So I spent um, like three and a half, four years in undergrad. Uh, My sister spent about six. And um, that's why she's the alumni director there now. They said, you're still working on your bachelor's degree, so just stay around. Um, You have college professors, right? Uh, Particularly at Davidson. At UC, we don't have a religion department. Though we should, and I would love to teach in it. So if anyone has power, let's get that going. Um... But at Davidson, we had a big religion department. It was a, uh, founded as a Presbyterian school. And I think of the probably 10 to 12 faculty uh, in the religion department, only maybe one or two would profess to be a Christian. Right? Only maybe one or two would profess to be a Christian. And uh, that does not mean, however, that they are dumb. It does not mean that they are idiots. Uh, in fact, they are very, very smart. They know way more Greek than I do and way more Greek than, than most of you do, unless you're a secret Greek scholar, in which case I need your help to pass seminary. 
Um, but they are really, really skilled at reading and writing, and they are very smart people. But even when they, with all their academic brilliance, all their linguistic knowledge and expertise, even when they sit down to exegete a text, when they sit down with their Bibles and read Mark 4 and then teach Mark 4, you have to take their teaching on Mark 4 with a grain of salt. Because even though they're so much smarter than me, they have one thing in common with me. They have a broken heart. They're sinners, just like me. And until they're restored in right relationship with God, their heart and their mind aren't working together in a God-honoring way. You can understand scriptures as a piece of literature to a point, but you cannot understand scripture rightly without a right view of scripture. You cannot understand scripture rightly without a right view of scripture. Now having said that, let me just reiterate, your college professors uh, or your college professor friends, they are not your enemies. I hate films like God's Not Dead. It's Jason's favorite, but I can't stand it. Because what happens in films like that is you have an us and them mentality, right? It's I have been given the secret of the kingdom. Notice, does Jesus flaunt the secret of the kingdom? No, he, he doesn't. Uh, he says, I've been given the secret of the kingdom. And this guy, you know, I would say is just an idiot and he's stupid. And maybe only if he came to my Sunday school class, if he understood the gospel from my mouth, maybe then he'd believe. That is uh, quite silly. And we'll talk about why in just a moment. Back to the text. Those with the right heart will have the right ears to hear what Christ is teaching. Christ is teaching in such a way that those who have the right heart will hear what he says, and it will be fruitful in their lives. Now, my question for you as we approach the explanation of the parable is simply this. What sort of heart do you have? What sort of heart do you have? The soil Jesus is about to teach us in the parable is sort of metaphorical for the hearts of the people who hear the word. And there are really only a few types of soil, right? There is closed soil and there is more fertile soil. What sort of soil, if you will, is your heart? I just had a flashback. I'll share this. I think I was in sixth grade. I don't remember. Um, but me and dad and Molly were heading to school at Polka Middle School. And uh, as you guys know, I'm, this, I'm a West Virginia fan. I like all things West Virginia. Like, I cried when Randy Moss got in the Hall of Fame last night. I can't help it. Um, straight cash, homie. And so um, I like a lot of West Virginia stuff. And so we had, what, West Virginia studies in, like, fourth grade or something. And you learn, you know, the cardinal, the black bear, all this kind of stuff. You also learn the state soil. And so we are on our way to school a couple years later. And uh, there was like the question of the day was, what is the state soil of West Virginia? And dad's like, who in the world would know that? This is silly. That's a dumb one. And I look at him and go, Monongahela Siltlum. <laughs> He's like, Monongahela Siltlum. I said, yeah, trust me. What? You wait, you wait. And so we're getting ready to drop me off at school. And they're like, Monongahela Siltlum. And I was like, told you, go to school. See you, dad. <laughs> so what kind of soil is your heart? I asked that question in my head. I had a flashback to it. It's Monongahela Siltlum. Um, <laughs> But uh, I trust that's relatively faithful soil, fruitful soil. I don't know. Back to the Bible. Verse 14. Verse 14. The sower 
sows the word. So Jesus asked in verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand the parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So Jesus says, let me be abundantly clear that the sower sows the word, and the seed is the word, and the sower goes about tossing that seed and sowing it. And then he's going to describe each of these four scenarios, and I think in some form or fashion, we're going to fit somewhere in one of those four scenarios. First, in verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. First, we see hearts that are unresponsive to the gospel. First, we see hearts that are unresponsive to the gospel. These are going to be the people who hear the message and they reject it. It is, um, it's illogical. It is, you know, I don't trust uh, the, the scriptures, I, I have this intellectual, I have this spiritual uh, problem, I have all these problems with the gospel. So these are going to be people who hear the gospel, and immediately the scriptures say, Satan, right, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. I think it's significant that the text says that Satan comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Let's go back to the college professor. What's the college professor's problem? His eyes are blind and his ears are deaf because his heart is hardened. And why is his heart hardened? It's ultimately hardened because every time the gospel comes near it, there's a spiritual war about his heart that keeps the gospel from being planted in his heart. So the problem with the college professor is the same problem that any non-believer has. It's that their heart hasn't been penetrated by the seed of the gospel. The problem with the college professor is that there's a spiritual enemy who wants his death and not his life. There's a spiritual enemy who wants him in hell and not in glory with the Father. There's a spiritual enemy who will stop at nothing to keep this message from taking root in his heart. And that is true for every single one of us. Church, the human heart is a spiritual battleground. The human heart is a spiritual battleground. We can get so focused on the things that we can see that we forget about the things we don't see that scriptures teach are raging around us. That the enemy prowls around like a lion seeking those whom he may destroy. That we are, in a quite literal sense, in the midst of a spiritual war with an enemy who wants to entice you and ensnare you and kill you in whatever way possible. The human heart is a spiritual battleground and the sower sows the seed and in this case, the heart's are not responsive. In this case, the soil is hard and the seed is snatched up before it can take any root. Now look with me in verse 16 in the second scenario. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. This heart is not like the first heart in some ways, but in some ways this heart is exactly like the first heart. It's not like the first heart because it is welcoming to the message of the gospel, right? The sower sows the word, they hear the word, and they say, you know what, man, that is awesome. I'm going to come to church every single week. Like, I'm going to come on the first Sunday, which today is the first Sunday, and I'm going to sign up to, to be a greeter. I'm going to sign up to join the missional community. I'm going to get in the discipleship group. I'm going to do this. I'm so excited. I'm going to give everyone my number. This is awesome. And you leave, and then you never come back. And it's like, it's over, right? That's, that's it. 
Perhaps you've met folks like this. I, I know I've met someone like this. Perhaps if you've led someone to Christ and you're so excited about that, you're like, you know what? I shared the gospel with this person and they believe the gospel and you're telling everyone about it. And then all of a sudden, you can never find that person again, right? All of a sudden, that person is no longer interested. I want to encourage you, if that's you, if that's been you, that it will happen to you again, and it has happened to me countless times. So if you are a loser, I am that much more of a loser. They're cool with the gospel, right, until they have a reason not to be. They're cool with the gospel until they have a reason not to be. We see this scenario, not, uh, we see this some here, and I'll talk about why we could see it a lot a lot more here, but we see this largely in countries where there's a lot of persecution, right? The text says that persecution arises. It's no longer convenient to be a Christian. It's gonna cost you something. It's gonna cost you your job. It's gonna cost you your family. It's gonna cost you a lot. And so you like the message when you hear it, but you don't have any roots holding it sort of in you. And so persecution arises, trouble arises, and then you what? You forsake the message. Again, we see this a lot in countries where if you decide to follow Christ, and then push is going to come to shove, and it's going to cost you your life, and you're like, you know what, never mind. But I shudder to think how often it would happen here if forsaking Christ meant keeping my job, my reputation, and my income. I shudder to think how many people, how many thousands and thousands and thousands of people would forsake Christ in an instant if he were no longer profitable in their lives. When tribulation or persecution comes, these people have no spiritual roots and they move on. Sometimes we can look with privilege at much of the world and we can think, wow, how dare you turn your back on the gospel, right? How dare you fuse your native religion with Christianity? When in reality, I think we have done the same thing. The third scenario, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Boy, I think this is the most dangerous for us today. And I have a question for you. Is this me? Is this me? At many stages in my life, as a Christian and as a pastor, I would say this can characterize my Christianity. And as you think through that question, is this me, there's a secondary question that will probe a little bit and help you answer it. And it's simply this, how fruitful is my faith? How fruitful is my faith? Do I see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Is your life marked by love? Is it marked by joy? Is it marked by patience? Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you look at your life and you don't see any self-control, right? You don't see any gentleness. You don't see any patience. You see very little kindness. You don't see any of these things. But yet you tell yourself, oh, I'm a Christian. It's all good. You may, I don't know, but you may be lying to yourself, Perhaps in my faith, perhaps in your faith, there are some thorns that are keeping the seed from blooming the way that are, they ought. What are these thorns? Jesus lists three. Right? 
What's the first? I think it's the most insidious. It's the cares of the world. The cares of the world. That your faith isn't blossoming, your faith isn't growing, because the cares of the world have become more important than the things of God. Your job has become more important than your relationship with God. Your, uh, your money, your relationships, all these things have become more important than your relationship with God. These are thorns that are keeping the word from being fruitful in the ways that it naturally would be. Again, these aren't bad things. Jobs, things like that. Secondly, Christ mentions the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. Chasing money gets us into a whole lot of problems. The third thing that is mentioned is simply a desire for other things. I simply want other things more than I want to be faithful. I simply want other things more than I want to be faithful to God. I would rather watch Netflix than pray because I value comfort more than growth. I would rather watch Netflix than pray because I value comfort more than growth. Is this me? Am I one where the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things have entered in and choked out the word, and I'm unfruitful? Fourth, and finally, but those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This is good soil, right? This is good soil. Three things happen in good soil. Three things happen in good soil. First, you hear the word. A second, you accept the word. You've, hear, you've heard the word of the gospel, right? You've heard the message that Jesus brings, and you've done more than simply hear it. You've accepted it. You've believed it for yourself. You've said, I believe that to be true cognitively with my brain and with my heart. I accept that word. I believe that. And the third thing that happens in good soil is you bear fruits. The text speaks of the fruit expanding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. This speaks to our spirituality, right? This speaks in an individual sense to our walk with God. But I think it's speaking broader. Remember, the central image of the parable is the sower spreading seed. The central image of the parable is the sower spreading seed. The central theme that Christ is teaching on is the kingdom of God. So the central image at play is that the seed will go down, right, and the harvest will come up. And that is most embodied in who? In Jesus Christ. Because if you think about what happens in the life of Jesus, right, Jesus is killed on Good Friday. He's buried in a borrowed tomb. And so Jesus, quite literally, right, is put into the ground. And I think this is interesting in sort of the, uh, the Jewish lectionary in sort of rabbinic traditions. There are a series of prayers and scriptures that would be read on each day of Pesach, right? The Passover feast. And I, I've read this before. It's been years ago. I couldn't find it to read again. But on that Saturday, on that Saturday where Jesus, our Lord, would have been buried in the ground, one of the prayers in this sort of lectionary was this, God bring us life from the ground. 
God bring us life from the ground. So imagine with me that picture of Christ who's just been killed and he's been, he's been placed in a tomb and all God's people, all God's covenant people are, are praying, God bring us life from the ground. And on that day, that glorious day, that resurrection day where Christ has risen, Christ is what Paul would call the first fruits of a new harvest. That when Christ died, when he was put into the ground, when he was buried, and when he rose, it was proof that this one seed is going to multiply thousands and thousands and millions and millions of times over. Christ would rise as the first fruits of redeemed humanity. When you look around the room right now, your brothers and sisters, you see the hundredfold, thousandfold, and millionfold harvest that the kingdom has borne. Worship team, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up. You know, the rest of the parables in the passage are going to speak to this idea in some way. Uh, the kingdom is sown in some small way, and then the harvest is bountiful. But as we uh, wind to a close, I, I want to pose the question that I posed uh, just a moment ago. And it's simply this. What kind of soil is your heart? What kind of soil is your heart. Have you believed the gospel? Right? I don't presume that everyone here is a Christian. Have you heard that Jesus, the Son of God, was born of a virgin, fully God and fully man? He lived a sinless life. Towards the end of that sinless life, he offered himself because he was the only one qualified to do so. He was the only one who loved us enough to do so anyways. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners. He was what we call in theological terms a substitutionary sacrifice. And all that means is he was my substitute. That he died in my place. That he was killed on a cross by Roman authorities. But this killing was God's plan all along that Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. And that in Christ, we can be reconciled to God. But only broken people, right? Only sinners is who this message is for. Jesus would die in our place. He would satisfy God's wrath. He would take the penalty that I deserved on himself. But that's not where the story ends. He would rise victoriously over death, over hell, and over the grave. He would overcome the enemy that I could not beat, that in Christ death has died. Have you heard this message? Most of you have, right? But what's your response to this? Like, yeah, it's whatever. Or is it, that message is good news for me? Have you heard the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? Has the gospel borne fruit in your life or has the enemy snatched that seed every time? Secondly, are you about to fall away because of trouble or persecution? You know, I think this idea carries with it convenience too. Am I gonna walk away from Christ because it's simply more convenient to do that? Am I gonna ignore what he's called me to do because I, I've got these other things I've got to figure out, right? Third, and this question is one that 
rings most truly in my life. Are you distracted, right? Are you distracted? At some level, man, we all are. And the things that distract you, you would be embarrassed to admit they distract you, right? You might be embarrassed to admit that 18 to 22-year-olds who dribble a leather ball and put it in a basket have so much sort of control over your emotions, right? You might be ashamed to admit that that sitting down in front of a computer and scrolling endlessly and looking through the window at other people's lives has such a control over your emotions. You might be ashamed to admit any of these things have far more control over you than you think they do. I think in many ways our generation, and I mean that everyone alive right now, is a distracted generation. Have the cares of the world sort of um, choked out the vitality of the word. And finally, are you fruitful? Are you fruitful? I'm going to pray for us, and as I pray, um, I want you to ask God. I want you to ask him, uh, where am I in, this, in these categories? Right? Am I obsessed with the cares of the world? Am I going to fall away when trouble comes? Because trouble will come, and it will be hard. Am I fruitful? Maybe while you're praying, take notes. But if you would, join me in, in prayer. Father, these parables are like uh, stained glass windows, right? On the outside, they just look kind of dull. They just look like a, another window, with cinder block and glass. But when I am on the inside and I see the light breaking through those stained glass windows, I, I see something far more glorious than I did when I was outside the window. Father, the same is true with you. When I was outside of your family, I looked at you and I, I just saw another idea, another deity that many people choose to worship. But I'm not on the outside any longer. I see you from a new perspective. I see you as who you are. I'm not the community of antagonism. I'm not the Pharisees, the Herodians, the murmuring crowd. But I, along with my brothers and sisters, we're in your family. We are your disciples or in your community. And where we once just saw another teacher, now we see the secret to the kingdom of God. Now we see God incarnate, God in flesh, the one who has come to seek and save the lost and to make all things sad become untrue. And so now that I'm on the inside and now that we are on the inside and we can see that, Lord, our heart's desire is to know you and to love you and to bring others to know you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would show us if we have been blinded to the gospel. Maybe someone's sitting here and is like, you know what? I've thought I've heard this my whole life, but I really haven't heard it. And this morning I choose to believe it. Lord, I pray that the enemy would be far away from this place as you plant the word in their hearts and allow them to live in covenant community with your people. Lord, perhaps some are about to fall away because trouble is going to come. Lord, slander is on their horizon. Difficult days are on their horizon. Tough decisions about relationships and finances and where to live and what to do are on the horizon. And these are about to, to, to choke out the word in them. And then others, Lord, we're just so distracted 
by work, by friends, by play, by all these things. Lord, I pray this morning that we would be fruitful, that your word would multiply in us in ways that we never dreamed it could. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you please rise and and join us in song as we uh, move towards the end of worship.